0: This afternoon we confess together the uh, Canons of Dort, Head 2, Articles 8 and 9. Let's confess these together. For it was entirely free plan and very gracious will and intention of God the Father that the enlivening and saving effectiveness of His son's costly death should work itself out in all his chosen ones in order that he might grant justifying faith to them only, and thereby lead them without fail to salvation. In other words, it was God's will that Christ, through the blood of the cross, by which He confirmed the new covenant, should effectively redeem from every people, tribe, nation, and language all those and only those who were chosen from eternity to salvation and given to Him by the Father, that He should grant them faith, which, like the Holy Spirit's other saving gifts, he acquired for them by his death, that he should cleanse them by his blood from all their sins, both original and actual, whether committed before or after their coming to faith, that he should faithfully preserve them to the very end, and that he should finally present them to himself, a glorious people without spot or wrinkle. This plan arising out of God's eternal love for his chosen ones, from the beginning of the world to the present time, has been powerfully carried out and will also be carried out in the future, the gates of hell seeking vainly to prevail against it. As a result, the chosen are gathered into one all their own time. And there is always a church of believers founded on Christ's blood, a church which steadfastly loves, persistently worships, and here and in all eternity praises Him as her Savior who laid down His life for her on the cross, as a bridegroom for his bride. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider the atonement and how definite it is for God's people, uh, please help us to have a greater appreciation for what it is and the ways in which we are secure uh, through the cross. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The scripture lesson comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verses 1 through 30. Once again, we hear God's word from uh, John chapter 10, verses 1 through 30. Hear God's word. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? At that time the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not a part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Word of God so far. Congregation of Christ and Friends, we are in the midst of a series on the canons of Dort. And by way of review, there are five heads of doctrine. The first is election, which is unconditional. Then we speak of uh, limited atonement. The Atonement is definite for God's people. Then we speak of total depravity, that all people are completely sinful. Irresistible grace is the fourth head in which we uh, hear about how uh, God's grace is effective in our lives. And finally, uh, the perseverance of the saints, that God will persevere you to the very end. Well, the selection uh, we've confessed together this afternoon comes, uh, our focuses rather, unlimited atonement and by this doctrine we confess that the scriptures teach that Christ died on the cross for the elect only his death was not for the non-elect so that's why it's helpful to begin in the canons with the definition of election election is this God has chosen out of the fallen mass of humanity some who will be saved in time and space so before the earth was created in the councils of eternity, God chose you, out of the fallen mass of humanity, to be saved in time and space. We argue, the scriptures argue, that Christ died, if you are God's elect, for you. Now, the biblical doctrine of limited atonement was challenged by the Arminians in the 1600s. The Arminians believed that Christ died for every single person Every single person, they say, uh, Christ died for them. This is not just a 17th century problem. It's a a problem today. Uh, Many people will say, well, Christ died for everyone. And the way in which you do evangelism is you go to everybody and say, Christ died for you. Now, the uh, the reason goes a person obtains the forgiveness of sins... Uh, there are many argued and others today. It depends on the person's own free will joined to the grace offered in the gospel. So the, the, the idea is God's grace goes out in a provenient way to all people. Christ died for all people. And you make it real when you express faith in Christ. So you take the gift as it were, and then you make the atonement effective for you. Well, Article 8 of our canons speaks against this unbiblical idea... And summarizes the scriptural teaching of an efficacious atonement. That is an atonement, when it was made, was made efficaciously for you, for God's people. Now another way to state the biblical doctrine would be this way. The purpose of Christ's death was to atone for the sins of God's elect. The purpose of God's death was to uh, forgive the sins of God's elect. That is, to atone for the sins of God's elect. And this states the issue a bit more directly. Uh, If you understand the purpose for which Christ died, then you understand for whom Christ died. In other words, the extent of the atonement to whom it applies is inherent in the definition of what atonement is. So the purpose then in the sermon is to argue that the purpose of Christ's death was to atone for the sins of God's elect. First, then, you'll understand what the atonement is. We'll define it. Second, you'll understand the extent of the atonement, which flows from the definition. And third, you'll understand the results of the atonement. In this way, you'll understand that the purpose of Christ's death um, was to atone for the sins of the elect. So let's define atonement very simply. In the Old Testament, it means to cover or to conceal. To atone means to cover or to conceal. And the word uh, falls in the context of sacrifices offered in the place of a person. So for instance, when a lamb was sacrificed, it was sacrificed for a definite people. The animal died in the place of the person for whom it was offered. It wasn't just sort of generally offered or sacrificed. It was offered for a particular people. Now, in the New Testament, the language shifts a bit uh, to such words as redemption. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Also, such words as propitiation and reconciliation are used. Propitiation means simply that God's wrath is appeased, His anger is taken away. Uh, Reconciliation is this idea that we spoke of in the first sermon. uh, God God making friends with His uh, people. So, two parties that are at odds are made friends. And all of these words, you see, are built upon the Old Testament idea of atonement, that there's forgiveness of the sins for God's people. Now, this uh, definition is filled with assumptions about the nature of people, the nature of sin, and the nature of God. So let's speak to these assumptions and make the nature of the atonement clear by asking this question. Why did Christ die? Why did an innocent man have to die? The answer to this question is the answer to what the atonement really is. Which further answers the question of the extent of the atonement. That is, to whom does the atonement apply? Is it to every single person? Or is it only to those uh, who are God's elect? And we argue the latter. So the question is, why did Christ have to die? This is what's great about uh, the history of the church. All of this is very clearly spelled out in our kids' catechism. you know that the Heidelberg Catechism is a catechism for kids? And kids can understand why Jesus died for them and what the atonement means. At the very beginning of the Heidelberg, it makes it clear that all people are sinners without exception. That's what we confess. There's not one person who's partly sinful... Not really sinful or not sinful at all. All people are sinful. Then question and answer 10 in the Heidelberg argues that God will punish sins in time and eternity because of his attribute of justice which requires that sin which is committed against the most high majesty of God be punished with extreme that is with everlasting punishment. In case you've memorized that, right? Romans 2 says that God's judgment falls rightly on sinners. God's holiness has been offended. And this justice says that people must be judged. Question 12. We confess that we deserve this judgment. But how may we escape it and be received into God's favor? How can we find favor with God? Answer, God wills that His justice be satisfied. Therefore, we must make full satisfaction to that justice either by ourselves or by another. Now, this is where we begin to see how the extent of the atonement is inherent in the definition of the word atonement. A person dies because of their sin. Or they may be a substitute. If a person is to be received into God's favor, he needs a substitute. Otherwise, he will pay for his sin in hell. In other words, somebody has to pay for your sin, for all people's sin. There has to be a substitute for that sin. Come back to this in a moment. Question and answer 13. We ourselves can't satisfy God's justice in order to be received into favor because why? We daily increase our guilt. Comes back to the first issue, doesn't it? We're sinful. Inherently sinful. We can't pay for our own sin if we're sinners. Question and answer 14. No other mere creature can satisfy for us because God won't punish another mere creature for another mere creature's sin. And no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin and redeem others from it. So a person could, and people do, suffer in eternity in hell for their sin but no redemption comes of it. In other words, if you said you know friend, I love you so much I'm going to go to hell in your place. You will go to hell and suffer for your sins you can't do anything for the other person's sins. Now, the Catechism goes on to argue that the kind of mediator and redeemer you need is fulfilled in Christ who is true man and true God Who is a real human substitute. And real God who can take on God's eternal wrath. Restoring righteousness and life to his people. So the catechism argues there is a substitute. There is somebody who can take your place. The key here is that Jesus, as the scriptures make clear in places such as Isaiah chapters 42 through 53 is a substitute. One who takes your place. So kids, you understand what a substitute is, right? If uh, you're asked to do some horrible task by somebody, if your sibling, as I'm sure they would do, says, I'll take your place to do that task, what are they? They're a substitute. They stand in the place of. So with Christ, he had to die, why? To be a substitute. Again, we're asking the question, why did Christ have to die? He had to die to be a substitute, to take the place of, to suffer vicariously for, for whom? So you see, you cannot avoid the question of the extent of the atonement in the definition. It is inherent in the definition. If Jesus was a substitute in his atonement, it means necessarily that he took the place of certain people who would most certainly be saved. In other words, Christ's death works salvation for people. He didn't make salvation possible, as the Arminians argue. Their idea of atonement is just potential. That is, Christ died for people who might be saved. In their system, Christ could have died for all the people in the world, not one person is saved. Now, nobody likes that idea at all. Because it's just potential. It's just Jesus dying. For what reason if nobody is saved? But in the Arminian, and we would say evangelical conception of the atonement today, it's all up to you. It's your free will that makes the difference. Christ died for you, but you have to make some effort through your own free will to take that gift. And so you see, uh, atonement in that conception... Is not made real until it is received, until you do something about it. No, we argue that Christ's death achieved salvation. It didn't make it possible, it achieved salvation. When Christ died, he died for sinners who were given by the Father to Christ. That is, Jesus has always, and think of it this way, Jesus has always maintained a sacrificial relationship to his people. It's not potential. It's not a potential relationship. It's a real relationship. You don't have a potential relationship with your spouse, do you? Well, I'm potentially related to them and potentially love them. Uh, That's not made real until she takes the gift of my uh, efforts. Well, that's ridiculous. You have a real relationship with your spouse. And so just as animals were sacrificed in the Old Testament, in the place of particular people, not for people potentially who have believed, but really and truly. So was Christ's a sacrifice for particular sinners who were appointed by God to receive His benefits. That is, the elect. Christ died for the elect. So those who confess Christ have a sacrificial relationship to Him and that Christ had to die for sinners who were appointed by the Father. But further the necessary sacrificial relationship between Christ and his elect is proven by the fact that Christ became a curse for us. Anytime you see the sacrifice of Christ discussed in the scriptures, it's for people, for us. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for people potentially if they take the gift. No. By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Christ is... uh, I'm sorry. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a a tree. In Christ's substitutionary death, he died because he became a curse. That is, he was cursed of God. If that's the case, he had to die. But why was he cursed? He was cursed because the sin of God's people were imputed to him. Now we talk about imputation in terms of God imputing righteousness to you, that is, declaring you righteous, right? We understand that's what justification is. But it also involves the fact that your sin is imputed to Christ. Christ doesn't personally become a sinner. He's regarded as a sinner. Isaiah 53.6 The Lord has laid on Him, that is Christ, the iniquity of us all. Not all the sins of the world are imputed to Christ, Your sin, the sins of the elect, are imputed to Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Paul is saying your sin is imputed to Christ, his righteousness is imputed to you. It is a necessary relationship, you see. Christ doesn't impute righteousness to those uh, whose sins are not first imputed to him. So, the sins of the non-elect are not imputed to Christ. The non-elect were involved, to be sure, in handing Christ over to be crucified, but their sins were not counted to Christ. If they had been, then their sins would not be counted against them. There would be no guilt of sin. That's very important. If all the sins of the world were imputed to Christ, then their sins are not counted against them. But the non-elect's sin is not imputed to Christ... That's why their sin remains on them and they die what? Did the non-elect die and do they suffer forever in hell because they're partially sinners? That some of their sin is left? No, all of their sin is left for them to deal with. So the biblical logic is clear. Those who are in hell are paying for their sin. God's justice is being satisfied by them, not for redemption but for judgment. Again, the Heidelberg makes that very clear. They can't die for somebody else's sin. They die for their own sin eternally. But, again, thinking this, this Arminian uh, construction, if Christ died for the sins, why would they have to pay for them in hell? Christ didn't pay for their sins if they are in hell paying for their sins. Again, the whole point of a substitute Is it taking the place of others so they wouldn't have to pay? Again, that's why we say the extent of the atonement that applies only to the elect is inherent in the definition of atonement. Atonement is a substitution. For whom? For God's elect. So to summarize, limited atonement, or the fact that the forgiveness of sins is applied only to the elect is proven in the very definition of atonement or the purpose of Christ's death. Christ's death wasn't a potential benefit for those who had faith in his death. It was a sacrifice for the sins of the elect because it was a substitutionary death, not a general death. And that's why you, brothers and sisters, say, I am the elect of God. Christ died for me, for all my sins. And that is why John says this in Revelation thirteen eight. The Lamb of God was slain from the creation of the world. The Lamb of God was slain from the creation of the world. As one person argues, the meaning of this may be understood through Ephesians one four. Now listen to this: For he that is the Father shows us in him that is Christ before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in His sight. You weren't chosen in this time and space, right? That's our definition of election. You were chosen before the earth was created. So in the mind and the purpose of the Father, Christ has already been sacrificed. Christ has been sacrificed before the creation of the world. He's already been sacrificed when He chose His people to be in Christ. The fact of election was a fact of death of Christ for his people. In other words, if Christ had elect before you even came into this existence, so were you also comprehended in the sacrificial work of Christ. Well, we'll let Christ himself uh, speak about his particular love for his people in John chapter 10, this wonderful chapter that talks about Christ's particular love. So the context here is the Jewish leaders, that is the Pharisees, have been poor shepherds for the people. They had thrown out the blind man who was uh, close to making a profession of Christ. Now chapter 10 begins with Jesus' words on the fact that he is a good shepherd in contrast to the bad shepherds. Christ loves his sheep, those, that is, that belong to him. Christ's particular love, his sacrificial love in this passage is understood more fully in John 6. Verses 37 and following. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus will lose no person who has given Him. Think of that. Jesus will lose no person that is given to him. But does that mean that only those who have faith in him first, thereby making uh, his death effective for them, are saved? No. Jesus says in uh, chapter 10, I lay my life down for the sheep. So these are the ones for whom Christ came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus says, I lay my life down for the sheep. Those those are the ones for whom Christ came in the first place. These people believe only because they are his sheep. Not the other way around. How do you know? Easy. John 10, verses 26 and following. Jesus says, but you do not believe. Why? Because you're not a part of my flock. Why don't you believe? You're not a part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, didn't believe because they were not Christ's sheep. It's very important to understand that. The Jewish leader, the Pharisees, Didn't believe because They were not Christ's sheep That is what Jesus says But the Arminians and many evangelicals today Say that people aren't God's sheep Because they don't believe So it's just the opposite Jesus says rather That people don't believe Because they are not his sheep Make it personal Why do you believe? Because you believed? Because it was something in you? Because you used your free will? No. You believe because you are Christ's sheep. And Christ died for you. So in John 15, Jesus says that he lays down his life for his friends. If he died for all, how can they be friends if they are in hell? Arminians and evangelicals have to insert potential friends, right? So interpret the Bible rightly if that's your theology. Jesus died for his potential friends. It's not what he says, though. Jesus died for his friends. So finally, the results of this particular definite limited atonement. Article 9 of Head 2 argues that God's plan and purpose in the atonement cannot be thwarted or fail. Even the gates of hell oppose it. Nothing affects it. The atonement is the accomplishment of God's plan, not a potential accomplishment. And what does that mean for you? It means unbelievable comfort. If your free will in choosing God makes all the difference, as some argue, then your free will, or we could say self-faith, is the strongest link in the chain of salvation. So this chain, it circles around. The strongest link has to be your faith, if that's what completes the transaction. And there's no comfort in that. I mean, if that's right, you always have to second guess your faith. Was it true? Was it true? Uh, Was it sincere? But Paul argues just the opposite in Ephesians two. Faith is the gift of God. Faith is not something that issues forth from your soul, your wicked, dirty soul. Let me think of that. It's wicked, dirty, horrible people that defy God. There's some little spark of good in there that grabs on. No. God reaches down, He plucks you from hell, and He gives you faith by the power of the Spirit. It's a gift. So you see, comfort comes from believing that Christ's death was limited. It was particular for His elect. Brothers and sisters, if that's true, when the storms of life come, the security is in Christ, not the strength of your decision or your self-faith. Yes, true faith is necessary and it is important. But we define true faith as something that is an instrument, not your work. So let's be clear that Christ is called Jesus because he saves his people from their sins, Matthew 121. He has laid down his life for his sheep, his friends. He is the savior of his body, Ephesians 523. He has died that he might gather together in one the children of God who are scattered abroad, John 11.52. And he has purchased his people. He has purchased his people, the church, with his own blood. Revelation 5.9, Ephesians 5.25 and 26. So in conclusion, brothers and sisters, the doctrine of limited atonement is a doctrine of complete and utter comfort for you Christ died for you. His death was issued forth and planned before you even came into existence. He chose you, and He chose and secured the means of your, your salvation when you came into time and space. So that is why Jesus like, almost falls over Himself in John 10, saying, nothing can snatch you from the Father's hand. That's all based on the fact of His perfect atoning death for you. And for that, we are grateful.